As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I've had a bit of man flu this week, but hopefully this gives my voice an extra sexy edge rather than sounding like Melvin Bragg. Although of course the parallels intellectually will inevitably be drawn. Today we look at a case from Nottingham spanning almost 30 years. It's a distressing but a fascinating story I think. Before we start, I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters, Jack Clothier, Cynthia Cooper, Robert De Castro, and also Maggie James, who has generously increased her donation. Thank you all, I really appreciate your support. I'm delighted that this week's episode is sponsored by The Economist. Get your free copy of The Economist now. Just visit economist.com slash truecrime. Just enter your details for your free copy to be delivered direct to your door. Now, I've read The Economist for many years. It's about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, arts and the environment. I love the variety of the articles. In the latest edition, listeners to this podcast will no doubt be interested in a very insightful piece about murder in developing cities in Latin America, a piece on criminal justice in the US, And the best obituary I've read this last week about Winnie Mandela, whose death has really split opinion. Take a look today, you won't be disappointed. The Economist helps readers prepare for what is going on in the world around them. And in today's dynamic world, when we're not always sure of which news sources we can trust, facts matter more than ever. The Economist is a smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free copy now. So support this podcast and get your free copy of The Economist by visiting economist.com slash truecrime. That's economist.com slash truecrime. Just enter your details for your free copy delivered direct to your door. Let's quickly set some context for today's story, which begins in October 1983 when Culture Club topped the UK chart with Karma Comedian. Were you a fan? Hmm, not really for me. Of course, everyone loved the awesome Black Lace with Superman, which was still at number 10. Bonnie Tyler was top of the charts in the US with Total Eclipse of the Heart. I once had a very enjoyable time with her in a bar in Swansea. I bet she too tells that story 25 years on to anyone who will listen. And top of the Australian album charts this year was Michael Jackson with Thriller, followed by Midnight Oil, Elton John and the legend that was David Bowie. In the news this month, the US invaded Grenada. The first democratic elections were held in Argentina after seven years of military rule. 
and Ron Grant completed a 217 day, 8,316 mile run around Australia. Good on you, Ron. 16 year old Colette Aram lived with her parents Jackie and Tony and her older brother Mark in Keyworth, a village of around 6,000 people, six miles or so southeast of Nottingham in central England. They were a loving family, with a large extended family and a large network of friends. Colette was a popular girl with a smile to light up any room. She had an infectious laugh and a wicked sense of humour. Life was good for Colette and her family. As a caring girl, she'd initially wanted to be a nurse and she'd recently completed a stint of work experience in a local hospital. She loved it, but she didn't want to wait until she was 18 to begin training, so instead she was now following in her mum's footsteps as a trainee hairdresser. Growing up, Colette had been active with judo, she'd ridden horses and she'd won numerous competitions for her dancing ability. But she did not want to perceive these as a career, they were just fun. She also loved to cook and she was very good at it, especially baking. On the afternoon of October the 30th, 1983, she had spent the afternoon cooking. Her parents and brother had been visiting friends and so she spent the whole afternoon baking. When her parents arrived home in the early evening, Colette had made the most wonderful Victoria sponge cake, oozing with cream and jam. Her mum was thrilled and gave Colette a large hug and a well done. The beautiful autumn day became a chilly, frosty autumn evening of the sort we typically see in the UK around Halloween. Colette, after clearing the kitchen, began to get ready for her night out. She was seeing her boyfriend of eight months, Russell Godfrey. Colette's parents liked Russell and they approved of their daughter's choice of boyfriend. Colette told her mum that they would probably watch a video together and then maybe head into the village to catch up with some of their friends, pretty standard stuff. Dressed in black corduroy trousers and a white blouse, Colette's mum looked at her daughter and thought just what a beautiful young lady she'd developed into on both the inside and the outside. She was deeply proud of her daughter. Jackie offered to take Colette in the car, but it was only a 10 minute walk and Colette said she would prefer to walk to Russell's house. Colette assured her mum she would walk up Nicker Hill, which was the main road through the village with a well-lit path, and with a big kiss and a love you to her mum, she was gone. A few minutes later, Russell called to see where she was, and after Jackie told her, Russell said he would go on his bike to meet her. At 8.10, Russell phoned again. He'd cycled all around the village, but he didn't understand it. There was no sign of Colette. Jackie immediately had that bad feeling about this situation, and she dialed 999. The police officer clearly felt this was an overprotective mum and told her not to worry but to ring again if Colette hadn't arrived home by half ten. After all, this was a 16-year-old girl. A frantic Jackie phoned family and friends and hospitals even for any trace at all of Colette. She knew this was totally out of character. With her husband Tony and son Mark, they drove around for hours looking for Colette as family and friends helped them search throughout the night. But there was still no sign. Russell came to the house in case there was news, but there was none at all. At 10.30pm, the police were called again. As the minutes turned into hours, Jackie kept repeating the same thing. She's lying in a hedge somewhere, she's dead, I know it. And tragically, Jackie was right, and she would never see her daughter Colette alive again. 
Just before 6am the next morning, Colette's brother Mark, who was then 18, drove past a striped blue tape of a police cordon at the side of a field, a mile and a half from their home. He ran towards the field, and despite police trying to stop him, he saw something that would haunt him for the rest of his life. That's my sister, Mark cried in anguish. His little sister was lying naked, bruised and battered, in a sexually explicit pose, with her wrists tied by her blouse and her bra. She'd been strangled to death and left in a field on a cold autumn night. In her 2012 book, Justice for Colette, which I've referred to a number of times in this podcast, Jackie described the moment she knew her daughter was dead. I was sitting in the armchair by the window in the lounge. There was a police officer by the front door and one at the top of the drive. And as my son and stepfather came back, I just saw them shake their heads and I knew straight away, she said. All I can remember is screaming. After that, something just came over me. I phoned work and I was really quite calm. I said, I'm sorry, I won't be into work today because Colette's been murdered. I stopped eating and it was only when the GP gave me tranquilizers that the pain numbed. A few days later, a notice appeared in the obituary section of the local newspaper from Russell saying, Colette, words cannot express how I feel. I'll never forget you and you'll be forever with me in my thoughts. All my love forever, Russell. It was six months until the family were finally able to bury their daughter, Colette. Colette's death spread terror among locals, with many parents refusing to let their daughters out. As we hear so often on this podcast, this wasn't an area where this sort of thing ever happened. There wasn't that sort of crime in this area. Police launched a huge murder investigation, and some 20,000 people were interviewed, over 2,000 statements were taken, and over 5,300 inquiries carried out. Detectives soon built up a picture of her killer's movements before and after the murder. Immediately after the murder, the police had a lead. A red Ford Fiesta had been stolen nearby at about 4.30pm that afternoon. Then at about 8.14pm, a resident had heard a scream from where Colette would have been walking, and a red Ford Fiesta was spotted by the resident leaving the scene at speed. Was this the car that took Colette? And two days later, there was another significant piece of information. After hearing about the case, the landlady of a pub in a nearby village contacted officers to tell them about a strange encounter she'd had with a customer at about 9pm on the night Colette was taken. A stranger ordered orange juice and lemonade and a ham sandwich, and he got talking with the landlady. As she didn't recognise him, she asked what brought him to the area to which he replied he'd come off at the wrong motorway junction. The location isn't far from the M1 motorway. But he then changed his story to say he was visiting a friend who had had an accident. As they spoke, the landlady noticed he had blood in his finger cracks and on his sleeve. When the man clocked that the landlady had spotted this, the mysterious man then went to the toilets to wash his hands before leaving the pub. Realising this could be vital evidence, a forensic team scoured the pub and tested all the used hand towels. They found Colette's blood on a towel, so they knew at that moment that the man who'd been in the pub was the killer. They also found a DNA sample from the killer, but due to the limited advances in DNA testing, they couldn't make a match. 
Then two weeks later, police received a Ripper-style letter from the killer. The DNA was the same as found in the pub, so they knew it wasn't a hoax, but they couldn't trace the sender. The poorly written letter said, Masks are common around Halloween. No one knows what I look like. That is why you have not got me. I go soon, and then you will never get me. On the 7th of June 1984, the murder of Colette was the first case to be featured on the newly launched BBC TV series Crime Watch. As a result of the appeal, police received 400 tip-offs and they were able to eliminate 1,500 suspects from the inquiries. However, the killer still remained at large. The case was featured for a second time on Crime Watch's 20th anniversary show in 2004, but again, although there were leads, there was no arrest. Meanwhile, as the years passed, the family had to try and live their lives. Talking to the Express newspaper, Colette's mum Jackie said, I thought I was going mad. I was getting crank calls and I was sure I was being watched. I thought the killer lived close by. Tony and I began to operate within our own little worlds. When Mark moved out at 21, Tony and I realised we'd slowly destroyed the love we'd once held for each other. With no one else to blame, we directed our anger at each other. We got divorced and I moved to Arnold. I became obsessed with the killer, scanning crowds of people to see if I could match him to the photo fit. Two years later, in 1988, Jackie was offered a holiday rep job in Greece. Although Colette was always in my thoughts, I thought I could make a fresh start, she recalls. My friends in Greece knew nothing about what had happened and I began to feel content. Seven years later, she began a relationship with Peter Kirkby, a fellow Brit who owned a yacht charter company on the island of Zankinthos. I hadn't told anyone about Colette, but six months into our relationship, I told Peter everything, recalls Jackie. He was shocked, but he listened, and that was all I needed. And on December the 27th, 1996, the couple married in Greece. Meanwhile, advances in DNA technology continued, which were to be hugely significant in this case. The scientific breakthrough is datable to the exact moment that it occurred. At 9.05am on September the 10th, 1984, when a researcher at Leicester University called Alec Jeffries looked at the X-ray photograph of a DNA experiment. Most scientific research is a slow, painful slog a sort of three steps forward, two steps back, and the truth emerges slowly from the gloom, he said. What we had was a rare thing in science, and that was my eureka moment, when we first stumbled upon the whole idea of genetic fingerprinting. The experiment he was doing was technically a failure. He was trying to study how inherited illnesses passed through families, and the x-ray did not tell him what he had hoped. But as he looked at it, he realised that the sequence of bars could identify individuals and families. Once he had confirmed that DNA was extremely stable, the genetic fingerprint remained intact long after the organic cell had died, it was clear that the discovery could have a wealth of practical applications. The first of these was not to catch a murderer, but an immigration case. A young boy from Ghana was being deported because the Home Office did not believe he was the son of the British citizen who claimed to be his mother. Jeffries was asked to take DNA samples and was able to establish to the satisfaction of the Home Office that the boy really was her son. 
and the first murder case came soon after in 1986 and was covered recently by the excellent True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Leicestershire police were investigating the rape and murder of two girls, Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, in the same village but three years apart. Local man Richard Buckland had confessed to the murder of Dawn, but not Linda, and Jeffries was asked to use his DNA technology to link the earlier crime. The technology provided a clear picture, all right. The girls had both been raped by the same man, but that man wasn't Buckland. The police weren't happy at first, but they eventually accepted their suspect's innocence. They then asked all local men between 17 and 34 to submit blood for DNA testing. 4,000 samples tested blank and the search seemed hopeless. But then a local man got in touch to say that a baker called Colin Pitchfork had persuaded a friend to provide blood on his behalf. Pitchfork's DNA was a match and he was sentenced to life in prison. Do take a listen to the podcast, it's a great show. Since that time, the police have built up the world's biggest per capita DNA database, taking mouth swabs from everyone they arrest. They now hold samples from millions of people, whether they've been convicted of an offence or not. Back to the story. In October 2008, Crime Watch was celebrating, if that's the word, 25 years on television. As it was also the 25th anniversary of Colette's death, her mum Jackie was asked to make a new appeal. Detective Superintendent Kevin Flint, who was in charge of the new investigation, warned viewers that developments in DNA testing meant that the police now had a full profile of the killer from the towels in the pub and the letter. He said that the DNA profile had been searched against the National DNA Database, but it did not match any of the 4 million samples already stored. But detectives had eliminated more than 1,500 people of interest, including some who'd moved abroad or died. Just in the last 12 months, DNA swabbing had eliminated 800 people. Detective Superintendent Flint said, I cannot overemphasise the importance of these developments. This is so significant and should be a real incentive for anyone who thinks they might know who is responsible to put that name forward. He also added that the man who killed Colette had stalked other young girls locally before the murder, including two in Keyworth on the same night that Colette went missing. He said, Colette would have been in her early 40s now, maybe with children of her own. The person who killed Colette has continued to get on with his life, which is a travesty of justice. Colette's family think about her every day of their lives, but they still don't know who is responsible. They deserve to know. The police force produced 15,000 newspapers dedicated to the Colette inquiry that were delivered to thousands of homes across South Nottinghamshire. The police and Jackie's family were hopeful finally of success, but again, they were disappointed when no arrests were made following the broadcast of the programme. But then six months later, back home in Greece, Jackie received the call she dreamt of. Kevin Flint told her they'd arrested someone and they were sure that he was the killer. This arrest was down to DNA testing. In June 2008, 20-year-old John Paul Hutchinson was arrested for a driving offence and gave police a routine DNA sample which showed a near match to Colette's. As Colette was murdered five years before he was born, he couldn't be the killer, but someone in his close family was. This took police to the home of his father, 51-year-old Paul Stuart Hutchinson. 
Hutchinson denied murder, initially blaming the crime on his dead brother. But Hutchinson, he boasted to other inmates about killing Colette whilst on remand, and when police revealed that they had his brother's DNA and it wasn't a match, Hutchinson had no choice but to admit his guilt. Along with many others, Hutchinson had been questioned in the original inquiry as a person of interest, but no action had been taken. Surprisingly, his DNA did not match any other unsolved crimes, and it seemed that after the murder, which took place when he was 25, he'd led an unremarkable life. Indeed, a recent post on Friends Reunited by Hutchinson, remember that, said, Hi everyone, completed my training with British Rail as an electrician, went through a divorce many years ago, remarried nearly 20 years, went back to university and now have a BSc and MA in psychology. For the last 26 years he'd lived six miles from where he abducted and killed Colette, as Jackie had always suspected. He led an apparently normal life, marrying twice and fathering four children, whilst working as a newspaper delivery agent and helping out as a tenant representative on his estate. As well as working as an electrician, he'd even held down jobs as a youth worker, helping children with learning disabilities and had acted as a school governor. He'd even given one of his daughters the middle name Colette, although police insisted this was his wife's family name. If so, very strange coincidence. At his trial, Prosecutor Dickinson said that Hutchinson, who was carrying a bread knife the evening he abducted Colette, had spent hours that evening in a shed near a riding school looking for a victim. He had stolen the Ford Fiesta nearby, which he used to abduct Colette on Nicker Hill as she walked to meet her boyfriend. The abduction and murder was premeditated and sexually motivated, said Dickinson. Colette was abducted by force and her screams were heard by local residents. She would have been alive and conscious when she was sexually assaulted in the car. The defendant then strangled Colette with his hands and abandoned her naked body in a field. Nottingham Crown Court heard how Hutchinson had abducted, raped and murdered Colette in just 10 minutes. A married father of four, he lived just seven streets away at the time of the murder and he often used to return to the village to spy on the investigation. After killing Colette, Hutchinson went to the pub where he had a drink and a sandwich and washed his hands, but that was, as we've heard, where he left behind DNA evidence on a paper towel and that would eventually lead to him being arrested. At the time of the killing, his family believed that he was in hospital having a lung removed due to cancer. He'd even shaved off or cut his hair to make the lie more believable. He never admitted the crime to his second wife Kieran and their three children and his first wife and son never knew either. On the 25th of January 2010, Hutchinson was jailed for life with a minimum of 25 years for the murder of Colette Aram. Mr Justice Flo described Colette's murder as a truly horrendous attack. He said, The terror and degradation that this poor girl must have suffered at the hands of a stranger in her last few moments are unimaginable. It's clear from the evidence before the courts that you are a compulsive liar and fantasist. You've lived your life with your wife and children who are completely ignorant of who you were. After the sentence, Colette's mum Jackie said, For more than 20 years I've always been very suspicious of people, 
looking over my shoulder, not knowing who this man was or why. We've already served a life sentence and we're now going to serve a second. He's just about to serve his first. She said her feelings of anger and resentment towards Hutchinson were heightened because he appeared to have gone on to live a normal family life, marrying and having children. She said, It's hard to believe and we were going out of our minds looking for Colette. He was in that pub having a drink and a sandwich. And then he's just carried on as if nothing has happened. I find it sick that this man can do what he did and then go on to father three further children. And how must they feel now? It's unbelievable that this man can sit there in court and act quite normal knowing this horrendous, absolutely diabolical thing he did to my daughter, this beautiful, innocent 16-year-old. There doesn't seem to be any remorse. He destroyed my marriage, he destroyed my family, it killed my father, and now he's gone on to destroy another family. Although the case is now closed, Jackie said there can never be any real closure for the relatives. She said, I don't feel a life sentence is enough. He's had 27 years of his life. I would like to have him in a room somewhere. I would like to inflict some of the things on him that he inflicted on my daughter. He inflicted horrendous, horrific injuries. It just doesn't bear thinking about. Colette was beautiful inside and out. She was very popular and a very lovely, lovely girl. By now she would probably be married and have a family of her own. Even though it was 26 years ago, you think about things she used to do. I see girls she was at school with. I wonder what she would be doing now. Detective Flint, who was in the incident room the night Colette disappeared and had led the investigation since 2004, said, I think the message this conviction sends out is that we will never give up. The nature of these offences made us even more determined. It doesn't bear thinking about what goes through someone's mind who commits an offence like this. Colette was an innocent girl. She ended up dead in a field on a cold October night. Every police officer worth their salt would always be determined to find him. He's a violent, manipulative liar who wrecked Colette's family's life. Every case that we work on as the homicide unit, we try our damnedest to bring justice to the family, and that sadly is all we can do. We can never bring back loved ones, but the most we can do is get a successful prosecution. In prison, Hutchinson became increasingly depressed after learning that his wife planned to divorce him. On the 10th of October 2010, He'd asked his wife to come and visit him in prison to talk. She didn't go. The next day, the 11th of October, 52-year-old Hutchinson was found unconscious in his cell at Nottingham Prison with a high level of antidepressant medication in his blood. He died in an ambulance on the way to hospital from this overdose of medication. Jackie describes how she felt about this, saying, I went back to Greece and Kevin Flint called. Hutchinson had been found in his dead from an overdose. He'd done just a few months in jail. I was furious as I felt cheated. But now, I don't care how he died. I'm just glad he can't ever do this to anyone else's daughter. Colette is always with me, but now, I'm finally at peace. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Such a sad story, isn't it? Over so many years, Colette's poor family, how could they possibly have lived a normal life, waiting to find out who had killed Colette. 
And for all those families out there that never find out, just how must it be just waiting every time the phone goes, every time there's a knock at the door thinking it must be news about what happened to the person that they love. And as for Hutchinson, well, what can you say? And frankly, who cares? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To support the show and listen to the 14 bonus episodes and other exclusive content, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. It's my supporters on Patreon that allow me to carry on producing a weekly podcast. So I'm so grateful for your support. Also, come and talk about any aspects of UK true crime, not just this podcast, other podcasts, shows, cases, anything at all, at our Facebook group. We have over a thousand members, it's a lot of fun, and you'll be very welcome. Like you, I'm now off to read my copy of The Economist. On the off chance you haven't got yours yet, please visit economist.com slash true crime and get your copy delivered to your door. So until we speak again next week, Thank you ever so much for listening to me. Cheerio, and remember, stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.